Welcome to Democracy Creative TV, a conversation series about the past, present, and future of democratic reform here in the United States and in the world. Um, it's awesome to be joined today by uh, Terry Baricius, who is a uh, notable local and also international scholar of uh, democratic reform. Uh, my name is Tevin Goldberg, and I'm joined uh, by my colleague Jesse Warren, uh, who is the founder of Democracy Creative, where we got our name from, and he founded it in 2019. Uh, and I joined it about six months ago when I answered Jesse's ad for a roommate on Craigslist. Um, and sometimes you never know where that's going to take you. Uh, and we're very excited to be um, launching this uh, series. And um, we wanted to begin with Terry for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because Terry actually featured on a series of t-shirts that um, Jesse made uh, before we had even met him, um, which is kind of funny. And uh, also, Terry uh, kind of came into our world um, when I found him on the internet as well uh, as a piano tuner. So he came over to the house, which I found on Craigslist, uh, to tune my piano. And as it happens, we share an interest not only in pianos that are in tune, but uh, in uh, increasing participation uh, in democracy and uh, reducing the influence of um, partisanship and elections in the uh, uh, functioning of our society. So um, without any further ado, I think uh, I just want to speak a little bit about um, who Terry is and then uh, get to actually having him talk a little bit. Um, so Terry is maybe best known around here as being the founder of the Vermont Progressive Party, which uh, is one of the United States' most successful progressive parties, which is admittedly not a very high bar, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's had an effect around here. And so Terry is known to people who have lived in Burlington for a while as a uh, um, elected official in city council and the state legislature um, and an organizer. Um, but we know him as somebody who actually uh, is quite concerned with um, democracy without elections, which sounds a little bit um, like a contradiction, uh, maybe, to a lot of people. Uh, and so, Terry, I was wondering if you could maybe just speak a little bit to why you would want a democracy without an election. How could that even work? Well, the uh, political science term for it, uh, what I'm advocating, is called sortition. Uh, it's not a word that even appears in some dictionaries. but. The, the notion is it's more like a, the jury model of democracy, where you take a random, statistically representative sample of the population, bring in all the expert witnesses, all the testimony, let them deliberate, let them hear all the, all the different sides, and make decisions. Um, this uh, bypasses the entire electoral process, the com competition which breeds divisiveness, um, the invention of reasons to attack and vilify other, other citizens. Um, and it's uh, an experiment. I mean, it's worth noting that using the word experiment is kind of a mistake because uh, ancient, ancient Athens used sortition for the bulk of their policymaking. Uh, after the reforms of 403 BC, uh, the Citizens' Assembly in Athens said, you know what, we're not going to make laws anymore. We're going to let a random jury, 500 citizens, they will decide yes or no on new laws. Uh, most of the magistrates, the people who ran the city, were appointed in panels of 10 randomly selected citizens. 
So random selection is the roots of democracy. And in recent uh, decades, it's taken off around the world, particularly in places like Europe and Asia and Australia. There have been literally hundreds, probably well over a thousand citizens' assemblies, randomly selected ordinary citizens brought together, uh, presented with a particular problem, and to figure out what is the best thing to do for society. No parties, no politicians, no elections, just true representation. And how did you get interested in that originally? Well, people who know me know that, that politics has been what I've been about uh, ever since college. Um, I was a founder of various political parties over the years, candidate for office many times. I got elected to city council in Burlington, Vermont, same election that Bernie Sanders was elected mayor in 1981. Served five terms in the city council, including a term as president of the council. And then I ran for the legislature a second time. I lost the first time I ran for the legislature by a few votes, but I ran again and I got elected. I served five terms in the Vermont House of Representatives. Uh, and then after I left the legislature, I worked on election reform nationally for an organization working on things like ranked choice voting, proportional representation, those kinds of reforms. So I was a policy analyst and, a, and a basically a lobbyist on election reform, democracy reform all over the country. And interestingly, in that work, one of the things that I did is I prepared testimony for the Citizens Assembly in British Columbia in Canada, which was looking at how to reform their voting method. And I prepared my testimony and said, this is what you should adopt in British Columbia, this ranked choice voting method. And the body that was deliberating was one man, one woman, randomly selected from each district within the province. And as I observed with their process, I said, my goodness, this is what we should be doing. This is the model that, that outshines um, partisan elections. Because the fact is, elections um, fan divisiveness. The partisan um, loyalties and tribalism um, end up actually sort of overwhelming genuine deliberation. And that's one thing that I did learn as a politician, is that deliberation is not something politicians do. Deliberation requires that you have an open mind, willing to change your mind, absorb new information, uh, and seek the best outcome. Politicians have run on a platform. They have, they've made certain commitments. They dare not change their point of view because then they're called somebody who's flip-flopping or they're, being, they're selling out. Um, and the goal of politicians is to show that the other side are corrupt, evil, or incompetent. And that, quite frankly, preparing for the next election is what governing is about to maintain power. And so I saw that firsthand in the state legislature. Now, Vermont's not a particularly corrupt place. It's not, a, it's not the, the, the height of partisanship. But still, as a politician, when the other side would bring forward a bill on the issue that I knew about, my first priority was to figure out what was wrong with it and how I could show that the other side was stupid or foolish or corrupt for even proposing that bill. That was what I had to do because we had to prepare the ground for the next election so that we could maintain power. Because politicians always say, well, if I can't stay in power, then I can't do anything. So staying in power is the most important priority. And so there's never any deliberation. They, the debate on the floor is showmanship. It's about presentation and, and you know, vilifying the opposition. So, 
well, after I saw that British Columbia in 2004, uh, ever since then, my political work has shifted to being on how to promote uh, sortition or the use of civic lotteries, randomly selected jury-like uh, ordinary citizens making democratic policy decisions instead of relying on elections. And can you talk a little bit about, because I, when I talk to people about sortition or citizens assemblies who've never heard of this concept, I think often the first thing that comes to their mind is they're a little skeptical or a lot skeptical, depending on who you talk to, about this idea of just choosing people by, by random or by lottery because they think, oh, you're going to get so many people who are not qualified to make decisions and who, you know, how, how do you make sure the people are actually going to take it seriously and do a good job? So that seems to be a, a, recurring, a recurring concern, so I'm wondering if you can well, talk about that. Well, two things. First off, the actual track record with hundreds and hundreds of these having been done in you know, Australia, Germany, Denmark, uh, France, uh, Japan, even in China, in um, Brazil, all over the world, the track record proves that ordinary citizens can handle very complex technical issues. Because you're not concerned with the competence of each individual member. You're concerned with the competence of the group as a whole. And politicians as a whole include people, well, individually, they can include people who are very, very stupid, very, very bad. They include some people who are very, very brilliant and very, very good. Politicians run the gamut. They run the range the same as the population as a whole does. I mean, I can, I can pick out individual politicians and say, this person is very, very stupid and very, very incompetent. And I can do that about a citizens' assembly as well. I can say, this person is not competent. But the point is, we don't care about the competence of the individual. We care about how the group as a whole works. And there have been a lot of studies to show that the diversity that you achieve through a, a lottery process, random selection, actually trumps the expertise, so-called expertise, of politicians. Now, I should point out, first off, that the expertise of politicians is not in the realm of policy. Their expertise is public relations and how to win elections. And those do not necessarily go together. Because quite frankly, most politicians know nothing about policy. And while when they're on a particular committee, they learn about that subject matter, when it gets to the full body, the, the chamber, and they have to vote on the issue, you know, eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 members know nothing about the bill they're voting on. They have not studied it. They just rely on the partisan members of the committee. And, they say, and the committee members say, yeah, vote for this. So they vote for it. The fact is there's no deliberation. There's no understanding. There's no expertise. Um, the expertise that exists might be within their staff or within the lobbyists who are paid by, you know, big money interests to be there. And their staff and the lobbyists, they, they do some, some real research, but the politicians don't. Politicians are not experts. So we're basically saying that instead of relying on people to self-select to become decision makers, we're bringing in groups of regular people, ideally in kind of a representative cross-section of the population, to exercise this decision-making power. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the key things. The self-selection bias of, uh, well, many participatory democracy things like a referendum, who, who, who votes, whether they're informed is an issue. But amongst politicians, it's just even more extreme. Because you have to realize, that we, 
in the mythology, we say, we, the citizens, have selected these people to, to lead us and to make decisions. But we get to choose amongst the people who have first self-selected to want to do it, which tend to be know-it-alls. Now, uh, there have been studies that show that people who run for office and, and also chief executives of corporations are more, far more likely to be so sociopaths than the average citizen. They're far more likely to be narcissists. They're far more likely to be egomaniacs. Now, there may be nothing wrong. Maybe having a bunch of egomaniacs is good for decision-making, but research has, so far has shown that there's no evidence. For example, they find that candidates with lower voices and who are taller are more likely to win elections. But there's no evidence that people with lower voices are more competent in making decisions. So the self-selection bias of politicians is, is actually a, a major detriment to the electoral process. I often talk about my next door neighbor, a woman who does so much for the community. She, she's so involved, she's so engaged, she's so good-hearted, but she's the kind of person who would never run for elective office. She's excluded, she cannot, in our, electoral system, she's the kind of person who is excluded and will never be involved in decision-making because she wouldn't run for office. We only get people who already think they know everything. And I put myself in that category. I'm very, I'm very opinionated. I think I'm really smart and I have opinions. But the fact is you get a room full of people like that and they can't really deliberate they, because they all think they already know the answer. And quite frankly, that's not a good way of making good public policy. Yeah, I think we're all kind of, a lot of the people I meet who are interested in uh, deliberative democracy and citizens' assemblies are kind of know-it-alls in recovery in a way. <laughs> yeah, I often refer to myself as a, a politician in, in recovery. Yeah. <laughs> I think another thing that people often needs to be clarified for people is how exactly, what are they deciding on? Is it, is it, is it you have a body that is like basically replacing the legislature with sortition, with lottery? people chosen by lottery? Is it a particular issue? Like, how does that work? There are a lot of ways. There are a lot of systems that are being used all over the world right now. Um, in one of the places I like to point to is the city of Paris recently adopted a, a citizens assembly model. Uh, East Belgium uh, adopted this similar model where they have an agenda council, which is randomly selected ordinary citizens that decide what issues the politicians are not dealing with adequately, and if they decide to call, an, they, they, then they, the, the Agenda Council, calls a citizens' assembly on that one particular issue. Then all the expert witnesses and testimony is brought in, and that body then makes a recommendation. Of course, the goal is to have, uh, my goal is to have them not only make a recommendation, but then to have a jury actually adopt yes or no on that being a law. Almost all the examples right now are yes and no to recommend it to then to the legislature, which means the legislature is still ultimately in the driver's seat. Um, but that has worked. Uh, people in the United States have heard of like in Ireland where they um, recently, um, last few years, they legalized same-sex marriage and they also legalized abortion. And, but what most Americans don't know is that whole process was initiated by randomly, randomly selected uh, constitutional convention of ordinary citizens. That's a Catholic country and the politicians were really afraid of the issue. They didn't want to deal with things like same-sex marriage and abortion, but a randomly selected group of citizens said, nope, these are the changes we should do, and they went to referendum directly, and the politicians just sat it out. 
Um, and those kinds of reforms were initiated by randomly selected citizens um, and not by the politicians. So sometimes the recommendations go directly to referendum. Sometimes they go to a legislative body. There's a lot of ways you could do it, but I like the idea of dividing up tasks. I don't think it works very well to have a randomly selected group of citizens do all the functions that a legislature does, a chamber like that, like the Senate or the House of Representatives, because quite frankly, the workload is so much that a lot of citizens say, I can't commit you know, two years to this. Um, you're going to get a less representative sample if the workload is too heavy. You're going to get a less representative sample um, if, if, if um, they're going to have to keep going in and give up their regular job, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I like the idea of having a randomly selected body agenda setting, one that's maybe going to review proposals and craft a final proposal and a deliberative process, but then a very short duration jury that just comes together to hear the pro and con arguments. There's a bill proposed. Here are the arguments for it. Here are the arguments against it. Now you decide, and they make a final decision. So that dividing up of tasks allows the most representative body, largest body that's going to meet for a relatively short duration, make the final yes-no decisions. That means that the somewhat smaller bodies that have a higher workload and therefore have a little bit more of an element of self-selection bias, because some people say, I'm just not going to do that, that body, because they're not making the final decision, as long as they're a diverse group and have all, all classes, all ages, et cetera, represented, it's okay that they deliberate. They're not fully representative because a final body is going to make the yes-no decision. That's my model. That's what I call multi-body sortition. <clears throat> I've written some journal articles about that and so on. Yeah, so you, uh, we've read some of those, and they're fantastic. And you often describe yourself as a theorist for this subject, uh, as opposed to some people who are really kind of in the weeds just trying to make these things happen, uh, which both are necessary. Um, but what I find interesting about your approach is that you're really trying to kind of think this whole thing through to every corner of uh, how we organize society, um, which can almost come off a little uh, subversive, maybe a little revolutionary, <laughs> because you're kind of you're talking about you know uh, changes to the uh, authority structure, to the agenda setting structure, to uh, um, to all these facets of government which are currently uh, handled by our elected representatives and lobbyists and right. special interests. Um, and uh, I wonder, like, do you think that there is a kind of a path to this end goal of having kind of a multi-body sortition society where that is really working? Uh, what's going to happen to the Vermont State House or something. Well, <clears throat> yes, there's there there are there's a path forward. I used to refer to this as my 200-year project, but things have been going so fast around the world that now it's my 50-year project uh, to I reform. Might still be around for that. <laughs> so, so the goal is to actually supplant legislatures, but uh, doing that in a frontal attack is is not going to happen. Uh, people need to see examples of of randomly selected jury-like bodies being successful, so they need to see it actually being worked on and, 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 and working in a good way before they'll consider adopting it. So I think what I, the, the, the strategy that I recommend is what I call peeling, P-E-E-L-I-N-G, <clears throat> peeling away one policy domain at a time. So let's say there's some scandal or corruption about um, 
zoning in your local community, then the proposal is let's take zoning away from the city council and vest all future zoning decisions in randomly selected citizen juries. They will decide what the zoning should be. You're not going to do spot zoning to favor this particular developer because they wanted to do this project here and all the neighbors were upset, but, but money changed hands and the corruption occurred. Instead, we're not going to let elected people do that anymore. It's going to be done democratically through a jury process. And then some other issue comes up. Maybe on a national level, we could look at something like healthcare. You know, the right wing doesn't trust government bureaucrats making decisions about healthcare. And the left wing doesn't trust insurance executive bureaucrats making decisions about healthcare. But maybe both sides could agree 500 ordinary citizens coming together, getting all the arguments, pro and con for all the different ways that you could organize things, that randomly selected representative sample of ordinary population, they have no, they have no reason to be corrupt. There's no, there's no uh, lobbyists, there's no campaign donations, there's no future election. They're just doing something that they think will be good for themselves, their family, and their community. Let them decide uh, issues of healthcare. And so my idea is you peel away one policy domain after another, and, and the, the, that's not quite a joke, but the, the analogy I use it's like what happened to the monarchies in, in Europe. They still exist, but they are powerless. I like the idea that the legislature, rather than saying we're gonna take away your power and give it to, we're gonna take away one thing at a time. The, leg the Congress would still exist, but they're basically just naming post offices. They're doing trivial things where the important decisions are done democratically by ordinary citizens in representative samples uh, that are large enough to be statistically representative of the population. Well, and I think that's such, I love that analogy um, because it helps put into perspective the way that the way things are right now is not the way it has to be because everyone can say, oh, the monarchies, like when people were living under that, they were probably saying, oh, what you want to elect now, every. I, I lost my train of thought earlier and that's oh, the point I want to yeah. make is that if elections are the only alternative to monarchy or dictatorship then yeah, I like elections better because you can throw the bums out. But the fact is you have a cycle of people who are sort of similar. Even if they have different policy agendas, they're, they're, they are tend to be older, whiter, maler, um, uh, better educated, but they, but they tend to be the same kind of people. It's not diverse. And as I said, diversity sometimes trumps competence uh, of the usual sort. Um, and so, yeah, elections have become more democratic over time. It's worth noting that for a couple thousand years, elections were deemed by political theorists throughout the world to be aristocratic or oligarchic. In fact, Aristotle famously said, the selection of magistrates by lottery is considered democratic, by election, oligarchic. And so for thousands of years, elections were seen as the tool for the aristocracy. In fact, even in the United States, in the founding of the United States, people like um, Madison wrote that the goal of his constitution was to elect the natural aristocracy. They, they, they considered democracy to be a problem. That was mob rule, and it would threaten the property uh, rights of the wealthy. And so many of the founders were dead set against democracy, and they thought only property males should be allowed to vote, and they would select the natural aristocrats, people like Madison, like Jefferson, um, uh, 
and, and instead of the inherited aristocracy of, of the of the you know monarchies. So they were anti-monarchy and anti-dictatorship, but they were not pro-democracy. Now, over the time, the term democracy started being applied to the system, the anti-democratic system that was founded in our constitution, and it became more democratic. When they extended the vote to women and to African-Americans, uh, even into to Native Americans, and uh, there were various reforms that made it more democratic, but it's fundamentally an aristocratic tool to put one group of leaders, would-be leaders, or another group of would-be leaders, but the ordinary people are not involved in governing themselves. They only get to select which team of would-be leaders get to rule over them. They don't get to rule themselves. So that, that's a very important thing. So I'm not saying I'm anti-elections when the choice is elections versus dictatorship. But I'm pro-democracy versus elections, which are not a very democratic tool. Wow, that's so much, <laughs> so much to, uh, to unpack there. And I do find this uh, historical study into ancient Athens very interesting because I feel like we often point to Athens in the golden age, the time of Plato and Sophocles and, and all these people as being kind of the um, the crux of Western culture, for better or worse. Um, and yet the sortition, which was their system, and not only their system, but other cities in ancient Greece, uh, was almost buried historically. Like it, uh, and you wrote a paper on the Athenian system of government and how it could kind of provide a template for today. And one of the most interesting things I thought of about it was you took into this argument uh, about scale and how people often deride Athenian democracy as only functioning because it was uh, a small city and they restricted the amount of citizens to, again, propertied males, although they eventually, I think, took Not away the- property, yeah. laborers. Laborers too, which but, was but, a big- But males, yes. yes. but males, of course, <laughs> yes, big problem. Um, but anyway, so, in that paper, you kind of argued that actually sortition is better suited to uh, different scales of government, even to the modern era of millions and millions of people, um, than elections. Right. So, so yeah, that... in ancient Athens, the only thing that most Americans know is the assembly, the ecclesia, 6,000 or more ordinary Athenian citizens, and, and it was mostly laborers. It was not. It was not propertyed people. It was people who worked in the silver mines or rowed the ships and soldiers, etc. Um, uh, but I'm not using them as a model because, quite frankly, you know, the fact that women weren't allowed and etc. etc. There's a lot of problems with the Athenian model. But the, the 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 fact that most people only know of the assembly and don't know that almost all political decisions were actually being made by, like in terms of administration, by randomly selected panels were administering the city that uh, in the reforms, as I said, at 403 BC, they, they actually took all lawmaking authority away from the assembly. The assembly did this, took all and put it in the hands of, of a jury, a randomly selected jury, where was the only body allowed to adopt new laws. Um, and, for example, the Boule, the Council of 500, which set the agenda and prepared all the the resolutions and so on for the assembly was 500 randomly selected citizens. They were the place where all the deliberation and detail worked out and presented to the, the assembly. The assembly was more like a referendum process, right? But 
Even then, when you look at the assembly, 6,000 citizens out of a population of maybe 30,000, 60,000 citizens, um, it was a, it was a quote-unquote representative sample of the population. Most citizens were not at the assembly. Most citizens, not just, I'm not talking about the women, I'm talking about the, the male citizens, were not at the assemblies. They were off doing their job, doing other things. It was only a sample that were there. And if you know about statistics and probability, a sample of 6,000 can accurately represent a population of 60,000, but it can also accurately represent a population of 60 million. So and the, the point is, the model that they used, except for the self-selection bias of going to the assembly, the statistics of it work just as well for a country the size of the United States as it does for a small city. If you only think about the assembly and that's all you know about, you say, well, that can't work on a large scale, but the random selection process can work perfectly on a large population. You get statistically, statistically representative samples uh, you know, at, at several hundred, four, five hundred people, and you have a pretty reliable sample. Um, so the Athenian model that they actually use, not the one that we learn in third grade or or tenth grade, the actual Athenian model works very well on a scale of hundreds of millions of people. We just have to try it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and it seems like you know, there's been a lot of these done in Europe, as you talked about. Canada, but very few done in the United States. And yeah, why? Yeah, why do you well, think United that is? States, and, yeah. uh, the domination, <laughs> the great, greatest country. In the, world. the domination <laughs> of of uh, of our culture and our politics by money is one of the factors. But the fact is, um, people like to say, "Oh, the oldest, greatest democracy in the world." And the fact is, it's been eclipsed by democracies all over the world long, long ago in terms of even the electoral process and so on, um, in terms of standard of living, life expectancy, all kinds of ways the United States lags behind. So it's not really that shocking that it lags behind in democratic reforms as well. Um, but uh, the, the, those examples of, of civic lotteries throughout the world um, have tackled all kinds of issues and in the United States, it's been relatively few. In the United States, for example, in Oregon, they randomly select a citizen panel to review uh, initiative referendum. So a, a referendum. They have a, the ability in Oregon to petition to put a, a, a ballot item on, on the ballot uh, on the, uh, item. And they said, you know what? People are going to the referendum and they, they generally know nothing about what they're voting on or maybe they've only seen some TV ads or the big money interests have paid to do a mailing or something like that. They do have a, um, a voter information form that they mail out to everybody in Oregon, but it's only got the pro and con arguments, both of which could be lies, right? Because um, there's nobody to double check it. They just argue with each other. Um, so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a randomly selected group of citizens. They're going to listen to the pro and con arguments. They're going to do the inquiry. They're going to ask questions. They are then going to write a, a summary of their, this ordinary group of citizens that are then well informed. They're going to write, and that goes into the, the mailing that goes to all citizens now. So that's a small thing. Um, but there have been other examples in California. There was some city that was trying to decide what to do. They had a 99-year lease. For, for fairgrounds, and then they come up and what are we going to do with these fairgrounds? Should we renew it? Should we do something else with it? Should we sell it to the developer? Should we put a park there? What, what should we do with this? So a proposal was brought forward to 
create a randomly selected citizens jury, a citizens assembly, to deliberate what should we do with this land? And, and so there are examples in the United States where it is used, but it's for small things, uh, almost always only advisory to the city council or, or state legislature or whatever, or voters. Um, but the United States is far, far behind. There have been hundreds of these in Germany. Um, the entire country of France, after the, the yellow vest protests, uh, uh, they had a series of open deliberations all over the country, and then 150 randomly selected citizens met for months on what to do about climate change. And models of that have been gone, gone throughout the UK and Scotland, uh, but they've looked, looked at their citizen assembly have dealt with all kinds of issues, like how do we integrate arts and culture into our, into our community? That was a subject of a citizen's assembly. Uh, what do we do about climate change, making long-term plans? Because quite frankly, one of the biggest shortfalls of the election system we have is that politicians cannot, well, almost never do make long-term plans because they can only look to the next election. They dare not do things that will be painful in the short term, even if they're essential, like for climate change in the long term, because if they do things that are painful in the short term, they're gonna lose the next election, they're afraid, because even if they could argue to the citizens, this is good for you, the opposition is gonna say, no, they're lying, they're, they're just pulling the wool over your, your eyes, and it's horrible. Because of the comp com competition, they dare not look down the road. So electoral politics is virtually incapable of making long-term planning. And quite frankly, ordinary citizens can, because they don't have an election to face. They don't have to worry about campaign contributors. And so that's why climate change is one of the premier issues that there have been more citizens' assemblies all over the world to deal with that issue than any other. But um, it's worth noting that um, it's not just planning for the future that sortition or, or randomly selected bodies can play a role. You could also use them, um, for example, oversee the chief executive. We could every year pull together a jury of ordinary citizens to review the performance of the mayor or of the governor or the president and, and decide, nope, this person's doing a good job, keep going. Or, nope, this person's doing a bad job, they're out of office, we're gonna have a new election. Or, Ideally, a random jury would then recruit a new person. But anyway, the point is, you can use it for anti-corruption. You could do it, uh, a police chief in some Mexico city is thought to be corrupt and in, in, in bed with the drug cartels. You could have a random jury remove that police. Maybe they don't have the evidence to prosecute them criminally, but you can say this jury has determined that the citizenry has lost trust in you, therefore you can't do the job. So you can use it for things beyond just policy making. You can use it for anti-corruption, oversight of chief executives. There's a lot of ways that um, randomly selected ordinary citizens can, can bring uh, democracy, government of the people uh, to fruition. Yeah, I could even imagine it working to review events of the past even, which I don't know well, if anybody's done, but Well, yeah. sort of, you can look at the, uh, in South Africa when they had the Truth and Reconciliation they didn't specifically use random selection. It was self-selection. People would choose to come forward. But yes, uh, I think that uh, you know, letting a randomly selected citizen's jury evaluate what happened on January 6th with the invasion of the Capitol, rather than having the politicians say, oh, they're, they're biased for or against Trump. You know? <laughs> right. 
it's better, it would be much better to have a, a jury of 500 randomly selected citizens do that evaluation. So there's a lot of ways that, because they're trusted, that they, they, have no, they have no reason to be biased. They're just ordinary citizens doing the best they can. Yeah, I often find myself these days, since I think about this a lot, as I go about my daily life imagining the people I meet you know, on assemblies and like, oh, this person could be writing my laws. Uh, <laughs> and also, quite frankly, a lot of organizations, like I'm a member of, uh, of a food co-op, thousands of members. We have elections. Nobody knows anything about any of the candidates. The, they write a little blurb response to some questions that were posed to them, but nobody double checks if anything that they've said, even their biography, we have no idea if it's true. Uh, we don't know if they've just said what they think people want to hear, if they have a hidden agenda. We don't know anything about them, but, but the only model that we have to democratically run organizations is elections. But quite frankly, if you let a randomly selected group of members come together and recruit somebody to be the board of directors, maybe they wouldn't be the board because they don't have the time to do that, but they could recruit a diverse board of directors that has all the skills that are needed. Um, so, so it may not work in tiny bodies, but in tiny organizations, quite frankly, elections do work because everybody knows everybody. But once you get to the point where people don't know each other, elections kind of fall apart as a true democratic tool. It becomes a tool of aristocracy. And so I use an example like um, uh, an online organization. Like imagine what if something like YouTube or Uber were democratically owned? How would they democratically govern themselves? So have an election, Uber drivers, nobody knows any other Uber drivers. How do they, they elections can't work. But if you take a random selection of all the Uber drivers, based maybe rate weighted by how many hours they drive or whatever, or it could be all the Uber users could democratically own it and say, we're gonna take a random sample and you guys are gonna select a board of directors. You guys are gonna select a chief executive officer. That's a genuinely democratic tool that can allow democracy to function not only in the governmental level, but also in the institutions. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, so, it's so fun to think about because it, it allows you to think of just how so many things could work better. Like it almost, you could imagine the electoral college actually functioning well if the <laughs> electors were chosen by sortition, and then it's actually sort of what the electoral college was intended yeah, to be. Yeah, they imagined that they would be. You know, in fact, yeah. there was actually. This is kind of funny. There, there was a during the constitutional convention in Philadelphia, there was a proposal on the floor at one point to use random selection in the selection of the president. What, what the proposal was not great in my view, but what they said, the proposal was, you take a random sample of members of Congress, randomly selected, put them in another room, and they can't come out until they selected a president. So there's no deal making, there's no bribery, they don't know who it's gonna be, and you take a random selection, and they're gonna, they're gonna select, so it's, it's like the Electoral College model. So the concept of, a, of random selection as an anti-corruption tool to avoid the opportunity for deal making and, and bribery outside, um, was known by them in ancient Athens, like when they would have a pool of thousands of people who could be selected for any, any criminal trial or a political trial or whatever, the, they would pick the names the morning of the trial so no one would know who was gonna be on the jury ahead of time. So, so they, even in ancient Athens, they used it largely as an anti-corruption tool, not only for representation, but also as an anti-corruption tool. That kind of raises the question, especially as you talked about incorporating it into Uber or something, which would be great, but um, is under whose authority are these uh, assemblies convened and how do you ensure that they're actually run well and they're not used 
because I can imagine kind of a, a scenario, especially if they became more popular, where people would kind of uh, organize them to give things legitimacy, but the actual results of the process might be kind of known in advance or partisan or something. The key yeah. thing is the people who control the agenda and people who control the flow of information to the jury, they're basically in control. Um, if they make sure that all the information they get is one-sided, then the jury's reliably going to decide what they want. So it's essential that that process also be democratic, meaning ultimately, in my view, a randomly selected group of, of citizens will oversee the staff. Anybody complains that the staff were being biased, then this randomly selected, selected group can, can listen to the pro and cons about this staff person, discharge that person, bring in somebody new. So if all the staff know that their job is on the line, they have to be impartial or they're gonna lose their job. Uh, the key thing is you don't wanna have politicians in control of the flow of information. And in, in Australia, where they've done a lot of citizens' assemblies, they actually, one tool that they've, they've worked on is on a particular policy issue. They, they get the, the interests, interest groups, outside interest groups who, that want policy A and the outside interests that are opposed to policy A, they get people from both sides or three sides or multiple sides together and they form a body that is people who disagree vehemently. That body oversees the preparation of information so that they all say, this is neutral information, this is factual information, this is the things that we disagree about and so these are the things that we will have our witnesses present and you will have your witnesses rebut them. But these, this is the information that we all agree is impartial and neutral because we disagree with each other about the policy completely, but we agree, agree we stipulate, as lawyers say, to these facts. So there's, there's models that can be used to make sure that the jury is getting balanced information, um, but that is absolutely crucial. You can easily imagine a jury being pulled together by some dictator in some you know, country saying, I've randomly selected citizens, but you know who, who did the lottery? Was it observed? Who prepared the information? You know, it, you can have a fake citizens' assembly, and so it's essential that every piece of it is transparent and controlled democratically, not by bureaucrats. Well, I was going to say something earlier, which was um, just well, I was going to I was just going to point out like this idea of like corporate. The, the degree, to, like you were talking about, the degree to which this can be implemented in lots of different ways in society. Um, yeah, the idea that we could, we could create a new form of a corporation that would, instead of just, you know, you have to have a board of directors that's elected, it'd be a, a, a sort Titian Corp or something, or a... a yeah, there's, and, there's, and you could, there's, yeah. there's um, elections have been so ingrained so that 99.9% .9 of the people assume democracy means you have elections. They just, the fact that that is a relatively new invention, a change of the word democracy, it's only 200 years old. It used to mean not using elections. Democracy meant you don't use elections, you use random selection. But now, since everybody seems that, even in the UN Charter of, of Human Rights, it says the right to elect your, your leaders is fundamental human right. And, and, and corporation laws say, the, whether it's the stockholders or the members of a co-op, they elect. So we have legal barriers to using sortition that have to be overcome because, quite frankly, until people have heard of the concept, 
they assume elections is the only way to do democracy. And so we have, we have a, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, right now, um, if, a, if a nonprofit organization wanted to use random lottery selection, um, what they would probably have to do is use a random lottery form a body that will then nominate a slate that, that then gets elected. So the election would be perfunctory. The real decision would be the random selection body recruits a board of directors, and then the election just ratifies it. So you could, you'd have to, because of the way the laws are written, not only in the United States, but in many countries around the world, it assumes that democracy means you have to use elections. Or even not democracy. And corporations aren't considered democracies because the more shares you have, the more votes you get. And that's not democratic. But, <laughs> but even there, they assume that you're still going to use elections. You could in a corporate, if a for-profit corporation could also use sortition if it were legal. They could say, the more shares you have, the more um, you know, lottery tickets you have in the, in the pile. And we're going to use a lottery to select a, a panel that's going to hire a board of directors. So you could use it even in a non-democratic model. But right now, we have a lot of legal uh, hurdles to overcome before it can be used that way. Yeah. And I remember something else I was going to say, too, which is that it does seem that this model, sortition, citizens' assemblies, deliberative democracy, is, is both addressing and dealing with the aristocratic aristocratic nature of elections or the way that they support an aristocracy of, you know, in whatever culture it is and whatever form it takes. But also it does sort of address that, was it the, 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 the like the, the framers of the constitution, for example, their concerns about the mob, democracy as a mob, because it's sort of, it's saying that unless you have a, a good mechanism to sort of create a reasonable sized body to actually to work through these issues substantively, you kind of do leave the, this opening for, you, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the point. The, the yeah. fear is that uninformed people will be making decisions. That's the fear of mob rule. That's the, you know, as, as Madison Rhodes, like, you know, the, 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 the ferment and the, and, and the, uh, passions of the ordinary people will make bad decisions because they're subject to control by demagogues or the passions. What we need is a deliberative group that can focus attention, get information. And that is a, that is a valid, reasonable thing. And so if you don't have the notion of a random statistical sample, the only way that they thought you could do it that wouldn't be an, an inherited aristocracy of, of hereditary noblemen was elections. So they also were under the impression that the, the Greek democracy was a rabble of the people in the ecclesia, the citizens' assembly, the huge assembly. Um, they didn't focus on the, the Council of 500. They didn't really pay attention to that. So it is true that ordinary people making decisions when they have no reason to be well-informed um, and they don't want to spend the time is problematic. But the fact is, that is exactly what we have with elections. <laughs> with elections, people who vote, whether let's say a referendum or voting for candidates, voters almost never know much about the candidates. They almost never know the, the track record of the incumbent or what the opponent is proposing. They know what their name is, maybe they've seen their picture, maybe they know what party they're in, and they, and they use some algorithm, some rule of thumb for who to vote for. 
uh, this, is, this is sort of an interesting detail that a lot of people just vote based on the party because they, they hate that party and they trust this party more. That's what most of us do in the United States. But there are also a lot of people who say, I don't vote for the party, I vote for the individual. And the fact is, they also almost know nothing about the candidates. And there was study that has been replicated at least three different times where they took photographs of candidates running against each other, like for the French elections, for US elections, and Brazil, and Mexico, and showed them to people for less than one second each photograph, less than one second, said, which of those faces do you think is more reliable, more competent? And the person that was selected ended up, turned out to be the person who won that election 70% of the time. So, and they would do this like people in India looking at photographs of people in Mexico. So they knew nothing about the candidates or people in Switzerland looking at photographs of people in France running for office. And they did it with children looking at photographs of candidates in other countries. And consistently, around 70% of the time, the person that they randomly, that they, not randomly, that they psychologically selected was the person who won. So it means that there are enough people who are voting for the candidate and not the party who are being influenced by psychological factors they are unaware of. Like I mentioned earlier, the fact that people with lower voices also tend to be selected in the same way. Um, it's not surprising that men tend to win elections over women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, elections assure that people who are ill-informed will be choosing the leaders, as opposed to a lottery where you take people together, you have to meet, they, they go education phase, they learn all about things. In fact, there are even proposals that use this model to then elect a legislature, which I don't particularly like, but I mean, the least informed way of making decisions is by using elections. Yeah, there's this phrase that I've heard uh, in this field called rational ignorance. Mm -hmm. uh, that's essentially the, because you're one of perhaps millions of people in an electorate, uh, it actually doesn't make sense for you to spend all this time learning because like, you're just a drop in the bucket. And uh, living in Vermont is funny because as we're a small state with a pretty active political scene, you know, perhaps more so than other places. And when the elections come around, there's lawn signs everywhere. And, uh, and you know, people, some people I know, you know really think for weeks and weeks about who they're going to vote for. And, uh, and that's good, but it sometimes, you know, it feels a little silly because like, oftentimes these elections are decided by these much more unconscious right. factors that we're talking about. And sometimes I wonder if the people who think that they're the most responsible people in the democracy are actually the most deluded because they think that they're going to, there's, that it matters. The, the, yeah. the phrase, uh, rational ignorance, Downs coined that phrase, rational ignorance, because yeah, the fact is, if you have one vote out of millions or hundreds of thousands, the chance that your one vote is going to tip the election one way or the other is virtually nil. I mean, there are elections that are decided by one vote, but they are so remotely rare. And therefore, if, if your participating in the election is going to have no outcome, there's no rational basis to inform yourself unless you simply enjoy it. If you enjoy it, like there are people who know the yeah. statistics for their sports teams. They know all about the sports teams. They know all about this, this, this athlete and that athlete, and they have really strong opinions and they cheer. Elections are the same thing. People don't like to admit it, but it's not rational, it's an emotional thing that they do because they get pleasure. People think of voting as a civic duty, as a good thing to do, and therefore they do it and enjoy it, 
but it's not because it changes, they don't get informed because it changes the outcome. They do it just because th th there's a psychological thing. But most people don't have that psychological, most people don't get informed at all. Most people, if they vote, and most people don't, most Americans do not vote in most elections. There are occasionally like presidential elections where it gets above half the people, but in most elections, you know, in a municipal election, if you get 20% of the people to participate in the election, that's a good turnout, you know? And so most people don't vote in most elections. So people who think that, well, it's your responsibility to become well-informed, those people are not well-informed. They are, in fact, deluded. In fact, Downs also coined the phrase, the paradox of voting, because it made no rational sense for people to bother to vote. And yet, a lot of people do. It's because it's, there's a delusion that it matters. It seems like we've, most people can't even imagine uh, how, to, how to solve this very intractable problem of how to fix elections or actually make democracy work. And so we resort to kind of guilting people into voting and it's like, you know, get out there and vote. And I think, all, you know, and I've learned to be a little careful when I do like recorded interviews about the timing of things because sometimes things can change dramatically a week later. Um, that's happened to me before with these things. But it does seem like right now that there's a, a, a a ripe, a ripeness to this because, you know, looking at what happened with the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade, and the the kind of left's response is, well, you got to go vote, and it's like, well, we've been voting, and it's not working, and there's had to be something else we can do. Um, but that's always just been the playbook of of the left is like, go out there and vote. And it's been so hard for people to imagine a different way of actually making decisions. Well, I, I want to be clear though. It's yeah. it's like. It's the system we have right now, and while the individual voting has almost never made a difference, if you do it as part of a collective thing, you say, we are all going to go vote, and in total, we will make a difference. I won't, but because I'm doing it, and I'm getting my cousin, I'm getting my cousin, we're all going to go vote. Right. So, so I'm not saying don't bother to vote. I'm saying that it's ultimately not a good democratic process, but if it's the only process that you're presented and the choice is dictatorship or elections, then, elect, then you do participate in voting. I do vote, um, but I don't belittle people who, sometimes I come across someone who says, oh, I don't know enough about the candidates. I, I don't think I should vote. And a lot of people say, oh no, you gotta vote. That person who's admitting that they don't know enough about the candidates exactly. is being more honest and more thoughtful than the person who says, no, you gotta vote. Because, because the fact is, that we don't know about candidates. And in Vermont, we vote, on, we vote for offices like probate judge and high bailiff. Nobody in Vermont knows what the high bailiff does. Do you know? We've, it's on the ballot, you know? They can recall the sheriff. Right, right. right. Yeah. They have a constitution. <laughs> but the fact is, we vote for all kinds of offices, and, and we, we maybe know about a couple of candidates in one or two races, the high visibility races. But there's all these other races on the ballot, and we just check by party label, and if it's a nonpartisan election, well, I, I always vote for the woman, or I always vote for the Irish name, or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And it certainly feels like third parties um, in, in the United States have always had a hard time breaking into the, the duopoly of the two-party system. And uh, this is sort of just a subjective, like, feeling, but you know, in, in Vermont, like we have the Progressive Party, which is, um, you're familiar with, uh, yeah. And you know, if you wanna vote in, the, in a primary here, you have to pick you know, which party you're gonna vote for, uh, which 
Um, so a lot of offices, even progressives running, uh, don't you know run on the progressive primary ballot. They run on the Democratic ballot or something. And in general, I get the sense that third parties are like they're for a time in which voting and elections really felt like the thing uh, to have an alternative in democracy. But you, having actually done that, you seem to now have just like moved entirely on from that. I and still put up campaign signs in my front yard. I still do those things. Yeah. But because I said my project, although it was a 200 year project, now it's a 50 year project, maybe it'll become a 25 year project. Um, is to is to move beyond elections. Elections is what we have right now. We, you know, if if it's the only tool you have, and it's that or Trump, you know. Uh, I, I, but I want to be clear that that sortition is not a left thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, I have given presentations on random selection jury model to right wing libertarian groups and had everybody nodding their head. Yeah, because they hate politicians too. We all hate the politicians. <laughs> we all think they're corrupt. And it's not that they are actually physically all are actually corrupt, but enough of them are that the system actually is corrupt. And um, we all have this bias, confirmation bias, that we, we believe that if we could just get ordinary people in the room and explain things to them the way we understand them, the facts that we know, they'd agree with us. And I think that, you guys probably think that, people watching the video probably think that, but so do the people on the other side of the political spectrum from you think that. Mm -hmm. So we all think that ordinary people would agree with us if they just knew what we knew. And that is the magic and the potential for sortition. We can all get behind the model because we all believe that we are right and the and ordinary people would agree with us if they had the facts. And that's one of the things that gives sortition so much potential because we can rally people from all political perspectives. The only people who we can't rally are elected politicians. They're really hard. There's really rally. not very many they Because they think, you know, you know, it's important that I get reelected. And quite frankly, like in Australia where they have the, the New Democracy Foundation, they've got several former prime ministers on their advisory board, but they're all former. They're all people who are done with the election. They know how horrible election politics is. They, they consider it corrupt, and they're out of it, and they're done with it. And now they're on board for the sortition reform. But almost no current politicians are on board. Now, the current politicians in a lot of countries like Australia, they are doing sortition as advisory. They like the idea of setting up citizens' assemblies um, to advise them, because quite frankly, there's a lot of things they don't have the time to figure out what the best thing to do is. And, and so there are politicians that are supporting, in many countries, supporting sortition as advisory. Yeah. Our goal is to make it so it's dis decisive. That strikes me as one of the biggest like potential like gulfs in, in the future of this is in a lot of places, like in Europe, they almost exist to legitimize the the, the sitting government. You know, Emmanuel Macron supports uh, citizens' assemblies, but I don't think, you know, it's, they're not really seen as like a threat to the established right. order at all. Uh, and indeed, they do make the established order look better because it's because now they, they, actually they more. They've consulted the yeah, people. They've consulted the people. <laughs> yeah, that's the key thing. Is right now. Um, Politicians are not very threatened by the assemblies throughout Europe and throughout the world because they aren't making they aren't making decisions. And once they start actually making decisions, that will change. And there's some 
they're saying, no, there's, there's, there's problems with legitimacy, blah, blah, blah. And so it is an issue that will come. But what we're, we're at the phase right now of this reform movement that what we need are examples and models. So people say, oh, yeah, I heard of that. They did that in, in my, my aunt's city. They did that to decide the uh, property tax issue. Yeah, I've heard of that. We need to have examples where it's being done and people have seen it and said, oh, that worked really well before they'll be willing to say yes. And in this referendum, like in Ohio, there's a proposal to do a constitutional amendment by petition to create a citizens assembly body that can pass laws. Um, and there's interesting details about the proposal and they haven't actually started the petition drive, but before they can actually have a chance of passing it, they need, ordinary citizens need to have heard of it. Right now, 99.5% of Americans have never heard of it. Um, so we need examples. So they're gonna, the early examples are gonna be advisory. So I'm, even though I don't like that model, it is the best thing we can do right now to promote um, sortition and, and, and true democracy is to, so everybody or most people have heard of it and seen it and said, oh yeah, that worked. Yeah, and certainly that's the goal of uh, this conversation series is to uh, hopefully you know, get this going in people's heads because it really is different. It's not, uh, it's not just getting more people to turn out to vote. It's not um, you know, anti-gerrymandering. It's not kind of tinkering around the edges of the current system. It really is a completely different uh, path that really has not been given uh, a fair uh, airing, I think, in, in our society. In fact, with, with my reform, I worked, after I left the legislature, I worked for 10 years on election reform for an organization in Washington, D.C., Fair Vote Center for Voting and Democracy. I worked nationally on election reform, pushing things like proportional representation and voting reforms, and I would prepare testimony for legislatures in, in Alaska and Arizona and other places, and in Vermont. Um, and uh, then I learned that after the British Columbia example, uh, the Citizens Assembly there, that in Australia, this, this new democracy foundation, the, the, the reform I was pushing was what they used in Australia. They used ranked votes for the House of Representatives, an instant runoff vote method, and a proportional representation for the Senate. And there, they were so frustrated with the continued partisan bickering, the money, the, the lobbyists, that they were trying to move beyond that to sortition. So I said, wait, the reform I spent the last 10 years working for, they are so fed up with that they're trying to get beyond it. Oh, wait a second. Maybe I should just jump over this reform and go to that reform. And that's what I did. Wow, that's an interesting I didn't know that. <laughs> um, yeah, and the... Uh, I think as members of um, a younger generation, uh, I'm 26, uh, Jesse, you're like, what, 32, 32. right? Yeah. Um, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so sometimes people are like, tell me that I'm Gen Z technically, I'm right on the cusp there. Uh, so I'm anyway. a boomer. Yeah, you're a boomer, yeah. So, I mean, I speak for the Gen Z, I guess. That's uh, I'm yeah, a, yeah, you're a millennial, I'm Gen Z. I'm a millennial through and through. Good, so, so we've, yeah, we've got some diversity here. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, you know, what I've noticed when I talk about this with my peers is that people actually kind of perk up because we're taking it as a, uh, not as a fault, but as a given of the current system, as an actual, uh, you know, condition that most people feel apathetic about elections and aren't interested. Uh, and I would say, um, culturally, 
younger people in the United States uh, are probably less tied to the um, civic traditions, civic republicanism uh, that has so far kind of been the hallmark of American politics since the beginning uh, of, of political parties. Um, and because you know, we've been raised on the internet, which is like the decentralized uh, platform of, of bar none. And, uh, the, uh, and so much of our lives already uh, feels kind of networked and decentralized and uh, based on kind of a democratic um, ethos of just whatever people like more kind of rises to the top, uh, which almost is sort of reaches a uh, point of crudeness maybe when it's just like, Likes and you know uh, likes and and dislikes, but there actually are proposals to go to what they call star voting, where you the candidates would be on the ballot and give five stars to this candidate, three stars to this. <laughs> that, that, that is an actual reform proposal that, that's out wow. there. Wow, yeah. So I mean things like that, but so all that is to say is that I think that um, we we're at a, a moment here where we can kind of just continue to uh, go down the same path that we've been going down, which is the default and uh, is currently happening. Or we can actually say, like, let's, let's try to organize our politics in a way that actually addresses the problems of, that, that are inherent in it, rather than kind of pretending like those problems are, are uh, not kind of core to the system, but are just kind of temporary inconveniences that would be solved if you just elected the right people. Um, and it gives me hope, I think, because basically nobody can tell us not to, to do this at, at this stage. I mean, you, you reach legal hurdles when you try to say this is eventually going to become the decision-making, agenda-setting authority in our society. But at, at this point right now, the public, uh, which is this kind of amorphous term that we can go into more, but uh, is um, is not organized politically in the in the decision making structure. So by organizing citizens' assemblies, like you're not breaking the law, like you're not actually challenging any of the authority. You're simply organizing what currently exists as a disorganized electorate and essentially creating a fourth branch of government. Um, so that's why I'm inspired by it because. There's so often where you, you just read the news and it's like, oh, geez, like, what, what are we going to do? You know, it's like just like, you know, everybody now it's so in vogue to say democracy is under threat. And that's almost like a partisan statement to say, uh, like, because what it often means Democrats are under threat. Well, and uh, the fact is that in, 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 in many countries where the United States is unique on the issue of climate change, that it's a partisan issue. In most places in the world, it's not a partisan issue. Everybody understands the science. All parties, left, right, they're all concerned about climate change and preparing, doing transitions, et cetera, et cetera. The United States is, is an outlier there. But, but that reality, interestingly, in, in countries throughout Europe anyway, uh, climate change has been one of the issues that there have been more citizens' assemblies called than anything else. In fact, organizations like um, Extinction Rebellion, they've made citizens' assemblies one of their primary reform proposals because they've seen elected politicians are unable or unwilling to take the kind of decisions that need to be made because they're so concerned about the next election. They're locked into this short-termism that is going to potentially doom the human race. And we need these kinds of reforms 
to save humanity. And, and that's a rather staggering realization that elections are the cause of our current climate crisis. Yes, the Industrial Revolution did it, but the fact is scientists have known for more than two decades, three decades, that we need to change this right away. And politicians that, well, well, we'll kick it down, that can down the road. We'll deal with that next election cycle, next election cycle. Yeah. And, and the big bill that was passed in Congress this year is better than nothing, but it is so weak, so limited. It's nowhere near the need, what we need. Um, but it's the best that we can expect from, from elected politicians. And so um, there are reforms like uh, citizens' assemblies that are deemed by many thoughtful people to be essential for actually saving humanity. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, like a couple of years ago when I first started to hear that you had been in, uh, writing about sortition and I was trying to get this thing of democracy creative off the ground, it was, I, it was pretty stunning to me how few people could connect the dot. We're at that point connecting the dots between what you just said, how elections as they currently exist are really the you know, it's, it is a scary thing to kind of admit to yourself, but that elections are the cause of the climate crisis, as you just said, and, um, or the current structure of how we are conducting them is. And, uh, but, and, and it's not only the climate crisis, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at any kind of crisis we're in, it's the, the failure of the current design of the system. Competition, yeah. competitive elections almost require, they certainly encourage false information. If I'm a politician and I say, we need to do this or the sea levels are going to rise this much, we have to do this for, for your grandchildren. Another politician say, no, that's a lie. That's not true. Um, that, that, that's, that's, that, they're just trying to manipulate you. That's a lie by that person. They may know it's a lie, but they've convinced themselves. The fact is you, you can't have the honest discussion because the goal of the politicians is not to be honest it's to win an election. And if the best way to win an election is by lying and saying that your opponent is, is trying to screw you over by raising gasoline taxes, taxes then they're going to do that. And you know they're going to do that, so you dare not raise gasoline taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so elections, the competitive election, virtually forces the public debate to be mired in lies and misinformation because the incentives of the politicians is one side or the other, but always some side, if some side has the truth, the other side has to lie to, to beat that down. So elections are what create this whole miasma of, of disinformation that we have. It's because of elections. Wow. <laughs> and it's not only the public debate, it's also the private debate. It makes it impossible to actually strike a deal with different groups unless in a very rare occasion when it's a big, it's a big deal that some and, kind and of progress was made. In addition to the, the misinformation, but, there's also the divisiveness in our country. The, the fact that people who are Democrats think that most Republicans are absolutely horrible people. That most Republicans think most Democrats are horrible people. They, you know, the siloed information, yes, that's part of it, but they always take the worst example of the other side and assert that that is what they are like. So the Republicans, say, Democrats, they're, they're all communists, and the, and the Democrats, say, the Republicans, they're all fascists. 
And I'm slightly exaggerating, but not much. And there have been psychology studies that show that when people actually, they get them in the room together, left and right, people, Democrats, Republicans, and they actually talk about, oh, you know, you're not so bad. It's like, no, we agree on a lot of stuff. It's, it's the illusion of, and, and quite frankly, then the politicians fan that. They love that. That's what they need. That's what drives voter turnout. The belief that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Now, I've heard that every year that I've been alive. <laughs> this is the most important election. Of, and it's always true because things are getting worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, it's also, it also seems like this, this concept that is perhaps right because in a way, you can't maybe, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but fault. Uh, well, I guess the ancient they did in ancient Athens, but it seems like technology will allow this to take a, a more prominent and, and complex form if it's done and used in the right way, because it'll be a lot easier to run a lottery of, of all the people in your community and keep, you know, uh, and 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 do it in a fair way. It'll be a lot easier to be able to share the information necessary to make a decision than it was, you know, maybe when the Constitution was written. It's interesting that with, uh, with the COVID shutdowns, a lot of citizens' assemblies continued, but they went online. And um, they have been developing software to allow people to deliberate whiteboards. And it's, quite frankly, face-to-face -face has a lot of advantages. Yeah. Um, but there are some advantages to remote that the person, rather than having to ha arrange childcare and get to this town hall on the weekend, they can read the material asynchronous, you know, in their free time, and then they can go on to the deliberation, even with the kid yelling in the background or whatever. So, so yeah, the technology has the potential to, to make this broader, um, but it's, of course, also, you know, social media, so the example of misinformation and, and quite frankly, the getting hits, getting likes, getting whatever as financial rewards and, um, quite frankly, one of the worst decisions ever made was the decision to have everything on the internet be free through advertising, which means driving um, views and attention. Um, uh, it's very sad what that's done to what could have been a, a, a much more powerful, much more beneficial technology. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think the um, uh, what you said about the in-person thing, I think, is really meaningful because there is like you know, this sense that not only is our political process kind of messed up, but there's this battle for the soul of America, the spirit of America thing uh, that, you know, Joe Biden likes to talk about. And it seems like from what I understand about citizens' assemblies that have happened in, in the U.S., is that's one of the major takeaways is that, like, oh, my God, we're, we're able to talk to each other. Like, this, this illusion has been shattered, and that has a lot of symbolic resonance beyond just the kind of policy-making advantages, perhaps, of using citizen deliberation, but of uh, the importance of, of actually getting the sense that like we don't just have to keep digging down into our holes here, but we can, uh, like, there, there is a, a different way. Uh, yeah, if you go, you go forward to my, my 200, 100 years, whatever, 50 years, when you have a, a democracy based on ordinary people being called up for a jury, uh, you know, we're going to make a decision about wastewater rates. Uh, I got called for the jury to decide what the wastewater rates are going to be for our city. 
uh, well, it's my job, I have to do it, and go and, and learn all about it. You wouldn't normally want to learn about it, but you, you, it's your responsibility. You have to make sure that it's, that it's done right. And you get paid. Right? And, you get paid and, and you might be called for, you know, every few years you get called up for some other jury on some other issue. Politics of that sort, without the elections, without the competition, it becomes kind of boring. And quite frankly, self-government done well should be kind of boring because you don't have this war. Politics is, you know, the majority rule of politics is sort of war without the bloodshed. It is, there's an enemy. In fact, the, the, the use of the, the, the language we use, join the fight, all this, it's about battling. And, and, and self-government should be about community and how we get along and what's the best interest for everybody. And, you know, we'll have disagreements, but we do have real disagreements in our culture. But most of the ones that get most of the attention are fake ones that were invented by politicians for the sake of driving voter participation. You know, like some southern state said, oh, we're going we're gonna to make a, a rallying cry about uh, same gender bathrooms. That'll get them psyched up. You know, they, they invented an issue to get people riled up that, that none of the politicians actually cared about. You know, and, and the fact is, most of the things that we spend most of our time fuming about were issues that were largely invented by politicians for the sake of, of dividing us. You know, even issues like abortion, um, same-sex marriage, a lot of these issues, real good-hearted people can disagree about them, but put in a room together, they can work out an agreement. But when the politicians and elections get in the way, they can't. Suddenly, uh-oh, they're the enemy. They're, you know, they're, they're either trying to take away women's, all of women's rights or they're trying to kill babies. Those are, the only two, those are the only two things. One of those has to be true. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, it does bring up an interesting point, though, that if, if the goal of, of this is to create a collaborative, boring democracy, uh, what do we, like Americans, we love sports. We love wars. We love winning, uh, and that's I think why politics is you know politics resembles sports as we discussed uh, statistically and and also in this kind of you know one team wins, one team loses, and you can only be on one team really. Uh, and so, what do we do with that? I say more sports. More sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's true. We make the politicians fight in, in a boxing yeah. ring or something. That's a good answer. All right, so. Yeah. You heard it here first. You know, you can, be, you know, you can have dance-offs. You know, I don't care what you do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a dancer. And, and sort of like business is, is in a sense, I, I've always viewed uh, a, the business landscape as, 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 a, as a landscape in which that can play out in a sense because that's sort of very similar as well, a competitive. I mean, we can get to the whole thing about, that, about, yeah. about you know, capitalism and, right, and exactly. that sort of, but, but, yeah. but quite frankly, this reform doesn't need to go there. Um, once you ha if you have representative samples, ordinary, you know, the famous quote is like, you know, the, the ordinary person may not know how to make a shoe, but they know where the shoe pinches. So you get ordinary people together, they can, they can say, these are the problems we need to address with. So let's get all the expert t witnesses, all the testimony, figure out a plan, and then we'll evaluate whether it meets our needs or not. And, um, yeah, so, so. Uh, we don't have to, there's an argument that you have to solve the issue of profit motivation before you can tackle climate change. 
And that may or may not be true. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there in this discussion, but I am gonna say that we need to tackle the issue of electoral short-term thinking before we can tackle things like climate change. All right, well, I think uh, we're probably coming to the end of this uh, awesome first episode. Uh, pardon my um, biased uh, interpretation, but that was a really great discussion. And thank you again for joining us and kicking this off. So uh, that was Terry Baricious. Uh, I'm Tevin Goldberg, and this is Jesse Warren. Uh, and you have been watching Democracy Creative TV. Tune in next time. Uh, don't even know who we're interviewing next, but they're going to be great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Good. <clears throat>